Well, on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the May 2015 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section, and thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Tina Shaw. She's a fellow in pulmonary critical care here at the University of Chicago. Go team. Uh, she'll be discussing her article, Understanding Why COPD Patients Get Readmitted, a large national study to delineate the Medicare population for the readmissions penalty expansion. Tina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dr. Hogarth. Wow, Dr. Hogarth. <laughs> it's funny to humor this. Tina's just down the hall. So, <laughs> My next guest is Dr. Jeffrey Jennings. Uh, he's an assistant professor of medicine at Henry Ford Health Systems in Detroit. He'll be discussing his article, Pre-Discharge Bundle for Patients with Acute Exacerbations on Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease to Reduce Readmissions and Emergency Department Visits, a Randomized Controlled Trial. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And then finally, also joining us today is Dr. Byron Tomashaw, Professor of Medicine at Columbia University and Chairman of the Board of the COPD Foundation. And he's going to be discussing his accompanying editorial, Reducing COPD Readmissions, Great Promise but Big Problems. Byron, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, guys, so let's, let's jump in. We're going to, you know, obviously there's a, there's a theme for today's podcast. Um, so kind of for all of you, um, What's the backstory here about why COPD readmissions? You know, why are they important? Um, you know, why, do, why should our listeners care? Um, isn't this, you know, just kind of part of the disease? They show up in the hospital. Uh, I can give you a, for a little bit of background on it. Uh, as you know, hospital readmissions have been singled out by, for improvement by the CMS National Strategy for Quality uh, Program. And the goal of the CMS strategy is a 20% reduction in hospital readmission rates, uh, aiming to save 1.6 million hospitalizations and billions of dollars of care. The first three core measures uh, came into effect several years ago, and they were acute myocardial infarction, uh, congestive heart failure, and pneumonia. Uh, and so those programs have been in place now for three or four years. Uh, each year, approximately 70% of the hospitals around the country are penalized. Uh, and the goal, obviously, is to try to reduce preventable readmissions. Uh, COPD, uh, hip and knee replacement were added uh, last October. Uh, so they're the newest ones. And the reason COPD has been added is because the COPD 30-day readmission rate has persistently run around 20% uh, in recent years. Tina, Jeff, anything else you want to also add into this? Sure. Um, I can add a little bit more. So. As a, as a current pulmonary fellow, we see a lot of these COPD exacerbations, and it kind of leads us to leads me to start thinking, well, this penalty has now come from our largest insurer in the U.S., which is Medicare, but what can we really do from the hospital perspective? And the truth is there really isn't very much literature out there to guide hospitals. And when you take an even larger look, there really isn't that much evidence behind this penalty being expanded to COPD. So while COPD is the third leading killer in the U.S., and we spend an exorbitant amount of money on hospital-related COPD care as well as overall um, costs for, for treating our COPD patients, we really don't know much about what the state of the state is, and then furthermore, what can we do as providers to really try and improve quality and cut these readmissions? I really want to stress what Tina just said because I agree with it 100%. The, the cost of caring for COPD in this country now stands at over $50 billion a year. Uh, estimates suggest that some 70% of that relates to exacerbations and 90% of that 70% relates to hospitalizations. Uh, but it's not just a financial issue. I think that's important because 
when patients are hospitalized, their morbidity, their mortality, their risk, they all get higher. Um, but I agree with, with Tina, there's a, not a lot of evidence showing how we can fix it, which is why Dr. Jennings' uh, paper was potentially so important. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, the, the rate of re-emission is also really significant. If we look across you know, various studies, even here at Henry Ford Hospital, the 30-day readmission rate ranges from a low of about 10 to as high as 20, 25%. So the question becomes, how can we reduce these readmissions? And th there, actually, there has been some studies showing that, at least in principle, these rates can be reduced. But uh, most of these studies employ fairly resource-intensive strategies that, that kind of go beyond that hospitalization and extend out to things such as home visits or integrated multidisciplinary teams. So um, the attractive concept would be, can we target something while the patient is in-house and actually exert an effect on the readmission rates without necessarily branching way out into the outpatient realm, which of course is quite important as well. Yeah. I think that the, uh, you know, one of the things about Dr. Shah's paper, which I found, Tina can talk about this more than I can, I found so interesting, uh, was that it stressed the fact that dual insurers insured, those people with Medicare plus Medicaid, uh, were much greater risk. Uh, and we've seen that. I mean, the, the Commonwealth report suggested that uh, patients who are cared for in uh, the safety net hospitals, those who take care of predominantly the poor, were much, much more likely to be hospitalized and rehospitalized than patients being taken care of in more well-to-do places. Uh, and that issue of social issues uh, sort of overruns this entire uh, concern about readmissions, and it's one that Medicare, that CMS, has not yet addressed. The other issue that I thought was really important in Dr. Shaw's paper was the uh, the importance of comorbidities, and that has come up repeatedly. Uh, no matter what the index cause of hospitalizations are, it appears that only around 30% of the readmissions are actually because of that index cause. They're almost always comorbidity-related. I, I, th I think I got that right from your paper, right, Tina? That's correct, and you really highlight on the two major findings, uh, well, the two of the three major findings we have from my paper. So just to give some background, people that are duly enrolled in both Medicare and Medicaid nationally, the prevalence is about 12%. What, what we found with our research is that for the COPD population, this is 26%. And furthermore, in those that are readmitted, 30 almost 31% of folks that were readmitted were duly eligible. So we have a disproportionately high burden of folks that have Medicare and Medicaid. These are typically the poorest, the least educated, and as Byron mentioned, with the least access to resources in the community that we're taking care of as physicians. So it becomes even more challenging compared to some of the other diseases that are under this penalty. With each year of the, uh, of the CMS program to date, uh, those uh, safety net hospitals have been much more likely to be penalized. Uh, and as Jeff mentioned, you know, th this could be very resource challenging to try to fix these problems, and many of those hospitals struggle with their resources to begin with. It's not a simple problem, and it's one that to date at least CMS hasn't actually uh, addressed. You know, I think that it's, you know, medical care is not only about the uh, the individual's health. Uh, matter of fact, the uh, 
uh, there's a lot of evidence suggesting, and many people believe, that, uh, that there are social determinants to health, like safe housing and good food and opportunities for education. And there are those who believe, matter of fact, there was an editorial on this in the New England Journal a couple years ago, that uh, there are some experts who believe that medical care accounts for only 10% of overall health, uh, with these other social, environmental, and behavioral factors playing much more of a role. And depressing as it may be, uh, among the countries in the organization, of uh, economic development, the United States may well rank first in health care spending, but 25th in spending on social services. Uh, I think that's a theme that hasn't gotten enough attention with this readmission issue, and that's one of the reasons I was happy that it was highlighted in Dr. Shah's paper. Well, since we're transitioning there, Tina, what else would, what are the key things that you would like to highlight from your work? And, and I think it really is a perfect segue then when we talk about um, uh, Jeff's trial and, and in particular then the results from his trial and, and whether or not, uh, you know, they're, they're applicable on his patient population, but if he had a different patient population, maybe we would have seen a different outcome. Sure. So we kind of touched on a couple of them, just to right. reiterate. One of the first things that, um, that this paper shows is that really there's um, a very high prevalence of these dual eligible folks. So again, Medicare and Medicaid patients that really don't have that many resources. And right. this, the hospitals that are taking care of them, which are um, largely burdened with mostly with academic teaching centers, actually are disproportionately getting penalized. The, the second thing kind of in relation to this is you know, we have to kind of think about how the penalty really applies to COPD. Is it really the same as some of the other diseases like CHF? And I think the answer is no. So compared to some of these other diseases, we know that there is a lot of miscoding in COPD. So this penalty is based on discharge codes. And my paper kind of calls to question, in theory, this, this might be a good policy, but if we're basing this on discharge ICD-9 codes, and unlike pneumonia or heart failure, COPD is known to be miscoded, um, and, and this is substantiated in literature, how do we really get past that when we're now really, you know, putting a very heavy penalty on hospitals? The second thing is that people come in really for many reasons when they're readmitted. And so, yes, the number one reason is actually COPD at about 27% after the initial index admission for COPD. But after that, there's really a myriad of reasons why. So CHF is about, um, is about a little bit below 10%. But after that, when you look, there's just so many different reasons that we really need to shape our thoughts as, as to how to approach us on the provider level from not just taking care of the COPD as the primary issue, but really thinking more comprehensively, how do the other comorbidities play a role? Because we think that patients are coming in mostly for other things. In fact, if you bundle all of the reasons for readmission together by whether they're related to respiratory issues or not, respiratory diseases account for only half of the reason why people come back. Um, and the last thing is that one potential way to start stratifying these patients, since we've, we've talked about already how healthcare utilization is, is a big issue, so there's a high cost, and also we really don't have the ability to give everyone everything, although we'd like to, is, is there a way to potentially bin these patients so that we can kind of preferentially give patients what they need, and maybe some of the other patients might not need things because they're not as likely to get readmitted. And one of the things that our paper showed was it really depends on where patients are discharged. And if you take a look, for example, 
if a patient patients that were discharged home or home with home health care actually had a higher incidence of coming back for COPD than patients discharged to the SNF. So this is also suggesting that um, depending on, you know, the, the provider's decision about where patients go, they tend to be very different and they tend to come back for different reasons. And this needs to be further elucidated. So I, I think so it's an important point. One, uh, what, what Tina was saying about um, uh, the coding ICD-9 codes may not always reflect the true diagnosis of COPD. Interestingly, in our, in our study uh, of the uh, 1,000 patients that were excluded, uh, 304 were excluded because they were ultimately found not to have a COPD exacerbation as the reason as had been originally um, put down by the primary team, and they were excluded for that reason. So that's interesting. Uh, you know, there is, I agree with what Jeff just said. You know, there's, there's a lot of attention. Obviously, the foundation and the COPD Foundation is focused on the fact that while there are now almost 16 million Americans diagnosed with COPD, that the estimates suggest that there are 12 million more who have the disease who are undiagnosed, that so-called undiagnosed population. But there, the other side of that coin, touching on Jeff's point, is that there's a huge amount of overdiagnosis of the disease, which potentially leads to overtreatment. Uh, I've seen data from VA systems, for example, suggesting that uh, that a, uh, a VA patient carrying a COPD diagnosis, only 30, 40 percent of them actually have obstruction on their PFD, on their spirometry. And if you're an overweight patient in, uh, in a VA system carrying a COPD diagnosis, uh, only around 30 percent uh, actually have, uh, have, uh, have obstruction. So uh, the issue of over-diagnosis over of who these people really are uh, are really important issues, and uh, yet CMS, despite a relatively little lack of uh, a lack of data uh, and uh, uh, the concern of what we're dealing with, nonetheless, it's, it's there and we have to deal with it. You know, the, so, the so one silver lining from all of this is that while we do agree that this penalty, um, as it's defined, has many issues, the good news is it's really focusing national attention on COPD, which is yeah. where it needs to be. So I, I'm really glad that we're able to discuss this because we can at least then take the next step forward. Yeah, I agree with that too. So, so let's get to to your work there, Jeff, because one of the things that you know that kind of the theme again, you know, with Tina's work demonstrating, you know, this let's let's actually start to study, you know, who this patient population population is instead of this just generic it's COPD and they're coming back to the hospital approach that you know has been kind of thrown at us and to get a better understanding of you know maybe we could more target this. Jeff, you, your group you know did an intervention and um, it was making an attempt to you know fix this and um, I'd love for you to, to explain to to our listeners you know what, what you guys did, what you found and, and you know whether anything that we've been talking about today if you were going to redo your study how would you do it different etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Sure. So <clears throat> Our idea was um, to hone in on specific risk factors associated with COPD exacerbations based on you know, prior uh, studies, or to uh, target a multitude of these risk factors for, for COPD exacerbation, and then to incorporate that into a bundle and intervene during that hospitalization, sort of uh, catch them while they were here for the hospitalization uh, sure. at a time closer to when they would be discharged, one or two days max, presumably, if, if we could. So they are presumably able to, you know, cooperate with the screening in a more meaningful way. I guess our, our main rationale was, was how feasible is it to alter readmission rates using a very simple, non-time-consuming or resource-intensive intervention that, that focuses on the uh, hospitalized patient. 
it's true that uh, as we widen the intervention to include home visits or early pulmonary rehab or PCP follow-ups, we, we of course, probably increase the, the chance of uh, reducing the rates, perhaps. But um, the purpose of this study was to see if, uh, you know, an in-house simple screening and educational tool would do something to the, to the readmission rates. So, therefore, we picked some risk factors that were associated with uh, uh, exacerbations, such as uh, uh, smoking, of course, uh, identifying whether the patient uh, was an active smoker, and if so, um, employing uh, smoking cessation counseling, as well as referral to our smoking cessation program, suggesting of a nicotine patch to the primary team, <clears throat> and identifying and counseling even on uh, secondhand smoke, smoke exposure in their home if they had it. Uh, we we administered a GERD questionnaire to see uh, for uh, you know gastroesophageal reflux disease, and then would give them information. Uh, you know, usually non-pharmacological information on uh, lifestyle and dietary modifications that they could do. Um, and each of these uh, uh, risk factors, when they were identified, the, the primary team was then notified as to the fact that the patient had that risk factor. Uh, so the, the anxiety and depression component of the bundle uh, consisted of uh, the hospital anxiety and depression scale, or the HADS, and then um, communicating with the uh, the primary team if the patient did have depression or anxiety, and uh, hopefully referring the patient to our behavioral health services as an outpatient. The, the COPD education component of the bundle consisted of such things as uh, assessing, you know, current behaviors to manage COPD, pursed lips, et cetera, uh, how, to t how to use their inhalers, the schedule of the inhalers to make sure they wash their mouth out if they have an ICS, an exacerbation action plan was actually incorporated and, and, and some breathing techniques. And then the communication part of the bundle was to communicate these issues to the primary team to, so they were aware of the risk factors. And also communicating to the primary team if, if we noticed that the medications that they were gonna be discharged on was not consistent with the recommendations from GOLD, uh, the Global Initiative, um, and that they were not I mean, we didn't write the order, but we told the primary care team, I mean, the primary team, if these discrepancies existed. Um, so, what we found that there was no difference uh, in the risk for a 30 or a 90-day combined ER or hospital readmission. We, we also included ER with that, not just readmissions, because we wanted to capture any exacerbation that occurred within 30 days that was enough to get the person sick enough to seek care, at least in the ER or, um, or the admission. Um, and, and the rates of readmission were, were similar, 22 versus 19%, which interestingly is kind of exactly what our rate at Henry Ford is over the last year. It's about 20% up or down depending on the month. And, and looking at the survival curve, the time to readmission was, was similar between the groups. Um, we, we also looked at a bunch of predictor variables for 30 and 90 day readmission, but uh, when looking at things like depression or anxiety, of course, we could not look at the control group because we didn't measure those things in the control group. But of those who had these factors, um, there really was no predictor for 30 day readmissions except for um, the number of COPD exacerbations in the previous year, which is kind of consistent with some pre previous studies that show right. that, one of the risk factors. Um, and the lack of uh, um, significant uh, findings in this study is not 
necessary for lack of the fact that they didn't have these things. Um, for instance, um, this wasn't in the paper, but we went back and looked at that 42% of the patients in the bundle group had depression. So, you know, 39 out of them. So we defined depression it was a, it's a, um, it's a, a scale, so a cutoff that has the best specificity and sensitivity, choosing that number and above, 42% of them had it, and 48% and had anxiety. Um, and, of course, as seen in Table 1, there was a significant number of active smokers that were distributed among both groups equally. Uh, you know, between 44 and 49% were active smokers. So these patients did have the risk factors, but um, there was, despite that, no, no significant effect from the bundle. You know, so, I can tell you, Jeff, that uh, that obviously all of us would have loved to have seen this relatively simple and, and <laughs> no. relatively inexpensive. I was all excited when I saw this. You know, uh, I know, I read your uh, paper, started crying at the end. <laughs> you know, I, the point that I would stress is that this isn't a simple problem, and, you know, right. therefore it's unlikely that simple cost-effective uh, responses to it are less likely to work. Uh, you know, I think that I, I wouldn't want people to come away from reading your article and say, well, discharge bundles are not part of the answer here because there is evidence out there from other parts in the literature suggesting perhaps a more intensive discharge bundle with some of the issues that you had raised that for good reasons you decided not to include, that they can be more effective with right. it. I, you know, I, I don't want people to walk away from this saying, well, throw that out. That's not an answer to the problem. I, you know, I think it's a complicated issue with lots of factors, and you know, I think that there are things in your bundle that probably would be very, very effective as part of a potentially more intensive bundle. And to add to that, the, the key, the key thing is that this is um, may, is not sufficient, but it, it may be part of a necessary, yeah. if it's combined with a, a slightly more resource intensive, it could work. We just didn't study that, but it just means that alone in a vacuum it may not be sufficient. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, the issue of how this gets paid for is complicated, right? Because obviously, that, you know, and I agree with Tina that it's the, the important thing, one of the important things here is that COPD is going to get more focus, and that's great. Uh, but uh, this is a very complicated issue, and uh, hospitals could be really impacted by this. I mean, even successful hospitals tend to work on a relatively small profit margin. If, uh, if, and remember, these penalties are across the board for all Medicare hospitalizations, not just those involving the, the core measure. Uh, and that could have tremendous impact now. You know, developing plans to try to address it, as, as uh, Jeff said, are, can be very expensive and resource demanding. Uh, are hospitals going to be willing to put those up up front? Where is that money coming from? It's, it's not a simple issue, I'm afraid. And, you know, I will say, and I, I, you know, Tina mentioned some of the key points in hers. I guess one of the things I'd stress is I wouldn't throw out the discharge bundle concept. I think there are things in Jeff's paper that are really important. Uh, it just may need to be more intensive. And there was one issue that Tina brought up, which I thought was actually tremendously important, which, uh, and that's the issue that most of these admissions, I think, Tina, uh, were within readmissions were within that, that seven to 14-day window. Uh, and, that's correct. Uh, and that's really important because a lot of programs, uh, including some of the classic gold recommendations, were to see the patient within 30 days. Well, you see the patient in 30 days, many of them, the ones who are going to be readmitted are already going to be readmitted. <laughs> so you are seeing them in the hospital. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you need, you know, I, you know, I think there's a real rationale, and I think there's increasing evidence, 
you know, whatever the primary, the index is, uh, to see these patients within 7 to 10 to 14 days at the outside of discharge, uh, no matter what else is included in that discharge bundle. You know, you know, these patients have so many comorbidities, guys, that, you know, that they often come into the hospital and leave the hospital on, you know, on 10 or 15 different medications. You know, right. whether they're taking them all. I mean, even if you've got, even if you've got, you know, copays, you know, most people are going to fill those. You know, you know, at least by either having a home visit or, more importantly, to some extent, having uh, having the patient come back within that short period of time. You know, people are so stressed when they leave the hospital. They say yes, they understand what we're saying, but a lot of them do not. You know, I I think that seven to ten day, fourteen day visit that that Tina found would be uh, might be critically important. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, in fact, at our hospital, after looking at this data and then, you know, matching the national data with what's happening at University of Chicago, we're now piloting a, a quality improvement project where we see patients that are admitted for COP within seven days. And the jury's still out. We're still collecting the data, but we, we feel like this is a, a good service. Um, a couple of comments going back to Jeff's um, paper. The, the first thought I had was, wow, what an undertaking, because the truth is if you're really trying to impact readmissions for COPD after you come in for COPD, we, we know that, and there's literature substantiating this, that really the FEV1 takes a long time to recover. In fact, these patients are sick for weeks below their baseline, right? So it's, it's really hard, and it kind of begs the question, for COPD, is 30 days really the right interval for us? Number one, and number two, could this could this discharge bundle of interventions actually have had an effect on the other reasons why people might have come back, which is a little bit more germane um, from a penalty standpoint, you know, to, to think of too. So I also feel like while we didn't get the desired outcome that we wanted to see, I think there's some more underneath this. Could we have actually impacted some of these other reasons for why people might have come back beyond COPD? Um, you know, which which would be a positive change. Well, interestingly, um, of the, the the patients that um, that were readmitted, uh, if you just look at those who were readmitted, there was no difference between readmission between the groups. But if you just look at those who were readmitted, the patients in the bundle group were readmitted earlier, ten days versus eighteen days. Um, I don't know what to make of that. Perhaps maybe the education had some kind of a effect on their increased awareness of early beginning exacerbation rate, and they came in earlier. The, I mean, I, we didn't look at whether the ones that came in later ended up in the ICU or you know things like this to back up that theory. So it's just an interesting finding. Maybe the, maybe the intervention of the action plan. You know, they they followed it. They you know, perhaps they right. got worse. They called. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which isn't so necessarily that's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's not. I mean, you know, remember, guys, the, you know, and I think both of you have commented upon it, there's relatively little data out there, at least in the COPD world, as far as readmissions are concerned. You know, when we reviewed the literature in a paper we published a year or two ago, uh, there none of the readmission studies looked at 30 days. Uh, they had 90 days, six months, a year, True. Uh, yeah. and we found only one randomized clinical trial in the United States of readmissions at all in COPD. And as you guys know, that was the VA study, which turned out to be a negative study. You know, yeah. people were, you know, were stopped early by the DSMB because the uh, the mortality was higher in the group getting uh, who were getting basically self-management. You know, that opens up, you know, that further stresses how complicated this issue is. 
uh, and that it's really not a simple one. And I, I want to stress something that, uh, that Tina was touched upon, and that is 30 days is a made-up number, right? right? I mean, you know, it's, it, there's no rationale for it to be bad for someone to be readmitted day 29 and suddenly somehow fine for them to be readmitted day 31. I mean, that's foolish. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, right? right you know, right. I think that the, the focus really is uh, on improving the care. If we improve the care, then the readmission rate, and that, that in, in, involves a multiplicity of things way beyond COPD. It involves treating the patient. It involves trying to improve their social situation in some form or fashion. If we improve the care, readmission should go down. If we reduce readmissions at 30 days, the care may or may not improve. There is some data in the CHF literature, for example, suggesting that those patients who are readmitted do better. You know, uh, you know. I mean, there is a concern that there's going to be so much, so much push on decreasing that 30-day mark that some hospitals are going to have a coordinated station in the emergency room whose sole job is to keep those patients out of the hospital. Right. Right. Okay. You know, I mean, there are concerns here that uh, are very, very complicated. You might be seeing some of that, that with the, uh, with you know, with observation units that are designed kind of with that in mind to not yeah. count it as an admission. Yes. But they'll treat them early, you know. That's correct. Absolutely, which, which poses an even bigger problem because then we start, you know, putting more of the risk and the cost on patients because observations are considered outpatient visits. Right. So is this, is this really going to be net good if we now tax patients by making them pay more for the same by care? By not addressing the problem, just shifting it into a different realm, you know. Yeah. It right. still brings up the eternal problem we have in COPD is the fact that we still use a very subjective definition to determine if you're having an exacerbation, right? I mean, we should back it all up and, you know, imagine if determining if you had an acute MI was based on, well, the guy said he was having chest pain, <laughs> you know, and, and that was I, it. You know, and, you know, Kyle, that's what I used to do. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> you know, old people like us, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, it is our problem, right? I mean, you know, it, it, the, it's not just whether or not someone's doing creative coding. We The, the definition is subjective to begin with. Yeah, I agree with that, too. You know, it's interesting. They, you know, there, there are some factors that have come across uh, that clearly seem to play a role with readmissions, no matter what the index causes. So the severity of the underlying disease, that's certainly true in COPD, but it's true in CHF as well. Uh, adherence to pharmacologic guidelines. Uh, we all know that uh, pharmacologic therapy in COPD, but in others as well, is underutilized. Re adherence to non-pharmacologic guidelines. In COPD, things like influenza vaccination. Uh, and, uh, Jeffrey, Jeff mentioned the very high percentage of patients who are, who are smoking in his, in his study. You know, nationwide, what, it's 19% of adults are smoking. If you look at COPD patients who are hospitalized, that rates 30, 35 percent. If you right. look at them rehospitalized, it's 30, 35 percent. Yeah, there are uh, there are the social issues that we talked about before. There are the very important comorbidity issues that we talked about, uh, and yeah, and then there's this intriguing concept of the post-hospital syndrome, right? Because we do things in hospital to patients, which are really a little bit bizarre, right? You know, yeah. we wake them up at five o'clock in the morning for vital signs, so that all of these patients 
patients get uh, get sleep deprived. Uh, they, uh, you know, we're so scared about their falling that we keep many of these people, many of whom who come into the hospital, uh, 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 you know, with disabilities. With uh, uh, yeah, they're deconditioned to begin with. They get more deconditioned when they stay in the hospital. We feed them food which is barely edible. When I go around my hospital at 7:30 in the morning, assuming the patients have actually gotten their breakfast, and that may or may not happen, I'll tell you that 90% of these patients are, are trying to eat their breakfast lying in bed at around a 30-degree gatch, as if we're trying to get these people to aspirate. You maybe know, they, they get deconditioned in the hospital. Maybe that's why early PR works. It just reverses what we did to them in the hospital. <laughs> maybe that's so. Very but, I, you know, I think that... I think well, that, well, that I think that one of the issues we need to address, and it's not just COPD, is we need to address how we care for patients in the hospital setting. You know, that, you know, we're very good at taking care of acute medical problems, but we're not so good at taking care of the patient, the person who has those problems. And that's something that I think needs to get more attention than concentrating on a made-up 30-day figure. Yeah. You know, I, I really like that Jeff's intervention had as part of it, a component of education to the patient, because I think this is where the money is at. And I think that finally we have some guidance that's really allowing us to convince, you know, whatever, whatever system we work in to devote some resources to teach our patients. We've actually been um, trying to implement something here where we teach patients about COPD and how to use their inhalers. And the response is, is beautiful. And it's, it's surprising how educated patients still don't understand these things. But then when we take a step back, we know that there's really been no incentive or no ability for, for providers to really give this service to our patients. Yeah, and also um, that, that, that also stresses we, it, just because it didn't work in the bundle, we, we did it. Uh, the research nurse met with the patient for a total of an hour, and in that hour was the education. So it could be that just like anything else with learning, you know, you need sort of repeated uh, educational things for it to work, and just one shot going over pursed lips and how to use your inhaler may be important but not sufficient for the educational component as well. And, Jeff, in that regard, uh, just a, a curiosity, which didn't come across in your paper, did you use teach-back techniques? Uh, uh, yes, where, we did. The research nurse yeah. would, would try to Good. ensure that the patient understood and would teach back, which was kind of another major reason why we excluded patients with delirium, dementia, yeah. cognitive issues as well for that particular educational reason. Is uh, the, the research nurse that needed to be satisfied, uh, which I guess is semi-subjective, but satisfied that the patient understood and could could teach back how to take the inhalers with the right uh, technique. You know, that whole issue that, that the whole issue that both Jeff, you and Tina have touched upon, I mean, so many patients, you know, guys go get hospitalized, get put on nebulizer therapy, yep. and then at the end of the hospital stay, they're given a prescription for inhalers they've never seen before. Right. You know, right. whether they fill them or don't fill them, most of them will have no clue how to use them. You know, and, you know, that further stresses our need to sort of improve the care level, not just their medical care. Now we or like when the hospital, at least on the, the hospital oh, formulary is different than the patient's form, outpatient formulary. <laughs> right. Yep. Right. Well, before you know, discharge, usually that they, they they look into which medications are are covered by their their plan. Um, but the other the other point is is there is some teaching in the control group in our hospital. Um, we we included the pulmonary ward and the general ward, and perhaps. Um, there's some discrepancy with teaching there, but theoretically, the, all, all the nurses are able to, you know, teach with how we're teaching. It may not have been as intense as our research nurse, perhaps, but there's something there. So, 
You know, this really touches on an important point, again, that COPD is like no other. I mean, our, the cornerstone of our treatment is inhaled medications, which we know are difficult to, to use, and up to 86% of patients misuse their inhalers. And I think this was also reflected in the data from my paper in that folks that went to the SNF, you, you can imagine most of them, you know, were receiving medications under the care of a, a practitioner and generally in the form of most likely nebulizers. So this might also be why we saw that there was a much smaller percentage of folks who were readmitted coming back for COPD than folks coming from home. It might be that really just delivery of these cornerstone medications, the inhalers are, are very important. But Tina, the, but yes, and I thought that was fascinating in your paper, but the people who were, who were admitted through a SNF were no, more, no less likely to be re-hospitalized. They were just being re-hospitalized right. for more of these comorbid conditions, which again okay. stresses the fact that it's the person, not the disease, that we need to deal with. Isn't that true? That's very true. Um, I mean, of course, you only get sent to a sniff if you're really sick, right, and if you have a need for it. So it, it's clearly com complex. I, I often kind of go in circles in my mind as to how do we really take care of these patients, but the comprehensive approach is the approach to go. The other thing that I, I, I think is worth stressing, which you know wasn't the point of either one of the papers, but you know, you know, while medicines, uh, pharmac uh, uh, adherence to pharmacologic guidelines are, are really only part of the issue and not the whole answer, and I, I understand that. Uh, there is increasing evidence suggesting that if you are aggressive enough about your medications, can make the make a difference. You know, there was that recent REACT study that was published suggesting that if you add resumolast to uh, to patients on uh, on a, on a, a long-acting beta agonist plus an inhaled steroid, uh, and 80% of those were on a, on a LAMA as well, so 80% were on triple therapy, that you could see a 20-25% further reduction in, in readmission rates. So, you know, you know, especially for the frequent flyers, if you will, those people who are coming back and coming back, a more aggressive approach is probably not an unreasonable approach to take. You know, that again gets into the concept of, uh, of polypharmacy and how many medicines so many of these poor people are on uh, and whether they're really able to support or take the medications. So many different barriers, but but I'm gonna like I think Tina said at the very beginning, lots of different opportunities here, and now finally, obviously, a, uh, for for what feels, of course, like a, a relatively punitive penalty, that's, it is at least drawing attention to an issue that clearly the the four of us have been been well aware of. You know the uh, uh, you know the COPD Foundation. Uh, uh, Tina knows because she was there. Uh, held a, the second readmission summit a couple of weeks ago in Washington. We'd held one in 2013, and we held one again now. Uh, and uh, the CMS folks came, and uh, they actually pre they were actually presented some data suggesting that there have been really some significant decreases in that 30-day readmission rate over the last couple of years. Uh, so, if you take that alone, I think that's potentially really important, whether or not it relates to the penalty phase or not, I, I understand what they're doing now. Number one, that, that doesn't include COPD, and there, there's been no evidence about COPD so far. And number two, uh, they don't really know what's happened to those patients, or at least they're not saying. I mean, you know, right. you know I mean, so, I mean, the goal here is patient care. Not we just put them over there. Numbers. You know, I mean, you know, so what is, so, and when we asked them, they said they didn't know, or they, or they didn't know they weren't saying. I mean, you know, I mean, are these people still alive? Are they, are they living any sort of quality of life? I mean, could they have been better off if they had been readmitted? I mean, that's information we need to know in order to decide whether or not this is really a good approach or not. I, you know, at least that's what I think. 
what comes back? What's the pure goal? Is it just cutting costs? There's lots of ways to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that, you know, improving quality care. About, right. I mean, I think the dual goals of the Affordable Care Act is to reduce care, uh, reduce reduce costs, and improve care. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. So reduce reduce costs and improve care. The question, of course, with all this, guys, guys, is what the driver is. Because if the driver is improving care, I think we would all enthusiastically agree. If the if the driver is reducing cost, we may end up somewhere with decreased cost, but maybe less good care. I don't know. It's it's worrisome. Maybe that Freudian slip I gave was appropriate. <laughs> you know, and I think so, it's even worse. It's even worse on the provider or even the hospital level because. This is based on patients, the penalty is based on patients coming in for COPD and then getting readmitted for anything to any hospital. So the quickest we can get the data is six months of, of delayed data. So how does the hospital really approach this? You know, it's tough when you really can't get the data real time when you need it. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that too. You know, there, there, are whole, there are a whole bunch of, uh, uh, for old people like me, there are a whole bunch of new interventions which are changing the face of medical care, right? Things like accountable care organizations in the medical home and things like that. Now, you know, I, I think in some populations those things might be very helpful, but, you know, I, I don't know the answer. And I, I come back to what I said at the beginning, that, that this is less about the COPD and more about uh, the patient and the person and their comorbidities and their social situation. And the social situation, is it may be as I, I as I think Tina touched upon, maybe even more significant in COPD because data from the BRFSS suggests that COPD is really a healthcare disparity issue. That if you make less than twenty five thousand dollars a year, you're significantly more likely to have COPD. If you look at Kentucky, which is the highest rate percentage of COPD patients, around ten percent of the adult population, if you look at those people in Kentucky who make less than twenty five thousand dollars a year, it's over twenty five percent of those people have COPD. So, you know, when you start with a disease which clearly has healthcare disparity issues, and now you're throwing in a penalty which may penalize the, the safety net hospitals even more, it's hard for me on the surface to see how that's going to help. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I think that's, that's a perfect conclusion. What our, what our population is, actually, you know, um, lower socioeconomic, we're in Detroit, and uh, the readmission rate uh, may be such that it's kind of out of the hospital's control. It has a lot of social issues, inability to get to your primary care doctor due to simple things like transportation sure. and then getting your exacerbation and ending up take, being taken into ER when, when you get too sick and getting readmitted that way when you might have been able to stay out elsewhere, being exposed in a house with multiple people with secondhand smoke, you can't control that. Yeah. Uh, the uh, inability to pay the copay. I mean, you know, the copay for the, the uh, combination inhalers are quite high, no matter which one you choose, and they simply may not be able to afford it, even if they do have insurance. Yeah, great. So, guys, we've been talking for a while, and I want to make sure that everybody has a chance to kind of give a, a final thought or anything that they have been chomping at the bit to say and never got a chance to. So, um, anybody, final final thoughts or conclusions? I think it's well, a good I mean, time to be a pulmonologist. Of, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Tina. Oh, I, I was just going to say it's a, it's a good time to be a pulmonologist because there's a lot of need for us to, to help our patients, and I think we can do it if we all work together. Tina, it's always a good time to be a pulmonologist. <laughs> <laughs> that may be true, but I think the take-home message for this particular problem is that we actually need doctors, not specialists, because it's right, a right, true, yeah. good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we're internists first, right, and then That's we can correct. become pulmonologists. There you go. Correct. There you go. Good recovery. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's a challenge to try to find something that works here, that but that yeah. doesn't you know tax the often limited resources we have. I, I still like the idea of targeting risk factors in-house prior to discharge, but maybe that's going to maybe we'll need more. But that was kind of attractive, and uh, another you know perhaps expanding to other populations. We did limit ourselves to populations that we thought would have the maximum chance of benefiting from the bundle, then if we have a positive response, we'd move on to other things like, you know, lack of insurance or, you know, these kind of issues. But we wanted to sort of get the biggest bang for the buck. And if this was negative, going to the less uh, at-risk populations, I don't know if that would make as much sense. I don't know. But that that was our rationale for, for um, you know, really having a, a narrow inclusion criteria. <laughs> I thought that both of those papers were very interesting and that this is a tr critically important issue. Uh, there's no simple answer, and the goal has to be to improve care and not decrease readmissions. That's what I believe. Agreed. Everybody, thank you so much. This was perfect, as expected. Um, I really appreciate your time and your commitment. And once again, thanks. I know our listeners, I'm, I'm sure, we're going to uh, very much enjoy this conversation. So thank you again. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. thank you. Bye, everybody. Have a great, everybody have a great day. Bye-bye. Uh, I wanted to thank you for inviting me. In case you didn't know, I wanted to remind you of a COPD conference in Chicago on June 5th, 6th this year. For the last 18 years, every other year in Birmingham, England, European investigators have run a COPD conference that has become the best COPD conference in the world. Several years ago, the COPD Foundation negotiated with the leaders of the Birmingham Conference to bring the COPD series to the United States in the alternate years. We ran COPD 7 USA in Washington in 2011, 2008 USA in Chicago in 2013, and now COPD 9 USA in Chicago this June. It should be a great conference. You can find information on the conference at the COPD Foundation website. Uh, thank you again.